Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. So with photography, it is quite interesting because now everybody has access to everything. So I think in in my space, particularly in sustainability, it's really opened up a whole new world of transparency that we probably didn't have five or even 10 years ago. Um, and that's transparency just on, you know, a day to day basis. You see something going on, you snap a picture, put it onto social media and that then blows up. So there's much more awareness now. But even in the corporate world, you know, people are, are now taking the opportunity to use photography to really show a lot more of the things they're doing, getting the word out there, which is kind of what we want. And I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point, but uh, corporations are sort of a little hesitant to promote a lot of the great things they're doing. And that's not necessarily the best approach. I think we should definitely be getting the word out there. So photography certainly helped to, uh, to do that. Okay, it took a while for us to get here. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Uh, good morning, sir. Good evening. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, no, oh, so you're in Melbourne. That's right. You do not sound like a guy from Australia. No, I'm not a guy from Australia. I'm <laughs> I'm American. I'm from Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Los yes. Angeles has been called the Melbourne of California. Has it? I have not heard that. I'm totally making that up. No, oh. that's. <laughs> So I'm full of shit, but don't worry, we're gonna get through this. <laughs> it took a while for us to get here, man. Because <laughs> I don't know who you are, and I don't know what your story is. I haven't looked at the photos, so I'm gonna dis discover. And already, the fact that you use sustainability like twelve times in your uh, your description has me super excited. This one's called "Just Stop Oil Activists." By how do I say your last name? Pabon. Pabon. Yep. Are you uh, a Portuguese? Uh, Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican. I'm mm -hmm. so sorry. No, it's all right. No offense. I'm, there's, I'm sure there's Portuguese at some point in the history. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know why I said Portuguese, but just the way you said Pabon, I thought, okay, <laughs> maybe. Okay. So the photograph has two youngish. I mean, they're kids. I'd say about 16, 17, 18, wearing um, a white T-shirt. And all I could see, well, it could say just stop, but I say it's in big black letters, just, and then in smaller letters, S-T-O, could be stop. Uh, very dramatic. Behind them is a gray, a dark gray wall, perfect for viewing uh, uh, paintings or photographs. And so it's probably a gallery because it's, it's got, yeah, it's got a little description on one of the images in the closest to the photographer is a young woman. Her hair is kind of uh, dyed pinkish. Uh, she's got nice hoop earrings. She's in the middle of saying something, so her mouth is in the in the process of formulating something like an S H O maybe. And then sitting right next to her uh, is a young boy with the same T-shirt, just looking ahead. They're both looking at somebody. So I don't know if they're presenting, if they're arguing. Just stop, oil activists. What what is this? So this is an image that came out. Uh, I would say it's been a couple weeks now, and it's probably going to go down in history as one of the more iconic images in the sustainability movement. So what? That's a big statement. Uh, yes, uh, and and I definitely think it will. So as a, a bit of background, Just Stop Oil is uh, an activist group that has made a name for itself over the last couple of years by doing really crazy sort of protests um they're kind of the the next evolution of greenpeace but sort of on steroids sea shepherds uh like the sea shepherds but a, a bit more a, a bit more public and certainly crazier than the sea shepherds oh um, wow so what they did in this picture in particular they've, they've done lots of things but in this picture that that i sent through they are in the british gallery that is a van gogh behind them oh, it is wow. van gogh sunflowers uh, they made their way in, acted as if they were looking at the beautiful painting that's worth Wait somewhere. Wait a minute. I have to... Ex okay, what <laughs> the... F okay, now that you say that, I see the Van Gogh, and I see that it's been tossed some orange paint that's actually gone on the front and crawled over the frame. That is tomato soup. Okay. 
They threw tomato, a can of tomato soup on the Van Gogh in a protest against lack of uh, access to food. Okay. So that is, uh, it's a very crazy sort of uh, thing. I can't imagine being there and watching this, although I've seen videos of people on, on TikTok and whatnot who are actually there to see it live. Uh, but this is their form of protest. So wow. so they did that. They threw it on the Van Gogh. The Van Gogh's fine. It's, co- it's covered in glass, so it, it is okay. Thank God. Um, but this is, this is their form of protest. This is how Just Stop Oil does their thing. Uh, they... We're in another museum, I believe, in France last week. They did the same sort of shtick. I don't know what mm-hmm. to what painting, but the same kind of thing. They're also notorious for super gluing their heads to concrete in the middle of London. Kind oh, of their wow. thing. So really sort of um, outlandish activism. <laughs> A bit right up my alley um, as far as in the sense that, you know, for example, when I I launched Shark Rescue, uh, and this won't all be about me, but... It was all about, okay, how do you get noticed? So instead of being genteel and kid gloves and polite, it's good to kind of go up there and, and, and do something a little outrageous because then it gets noticed, obviously, as uh, these kids did. But you're starting off with a bang. I mean, okay. Now, my position is a bit more, I don't know, I sort of hem and haw on it a bit. Overall, uh, when I when I speak to people, I am not very pro this kind of activism, and and there's mm-hmm. a few reasons. And the reason for me, at least, is the message is out there. It's not like the sustainability or environmental movement is just starting. We've been doing it for close to a hundred years. There's probably very few people in the world now that don't know there's something going on with climate change or environmentalism. Whether or not they're doing something is a very different issue. Our goal as folks in this space is to get people converted so versus getting impressions this campaign got a lot of impressions everybody's talking Mm -hmm. about it did it convert anybody to become more environmentally friendly or to join the sustainability cause or join an ngo i'm not exactly sure if anything it probably turned people off because they're kind of sitting back scratching their heads and going okay i don't understand what the link is with saving the planet and there Mm -hmm. is not a link so i talk a lot about being an altruist certainly you know you want to do good but you have to be more pragmatic uh, you have mm-hmm. to really think and be strategic about what you're doing so you can get more people on side. John, you're speaking my language. I love this. Who are you? Okay. This is great. This is great. Okay, so so you've, you've put these little bombs out in the air, and I'm going to have to, uh, I don't know, detonate them. So what are you doing in Australia? How did you get there? Yeah, my career's a, a bit of a weird one. I've, I've kind of traveled the world. So I've been in this space, sustainability, for, God, it's been like 20 years now. Uh, but what I experienced when I first started out in my professional career, I was in New York. I was working at the UN um, and became really interested in this sort of uh, public good. I've always kind of been in that space. But sitting behind a desk didn't really do it for me. I think with with what we're doing in sustainability, with all the changes going on in the world, I wanted to really experience that. So I started to travel. Um, I moved to Shanghai. I was in Shanghai for about a decade, and that's where I really dug deep <laughs> into the world of sustainability. So versus just in academic discussion, sitting on a panel and talking about it, I was in factories. I was on fields with uh, you know, with the, with the individual workers, I, I lived on a on a palm oil plantation in Borneo for a bit, um, and just really wanted to be there and to see things firsthand. And I think that's a little bit of the distinction between folks that may be in <clears throat> the United States or in Europe, where sustainability is more conceptual. But yeah. in in Asia, in particular, it's you know roll your sleeves up and get dirty. It's it's work that's going on. Um, and then after my uh, <laughs> my my ten year stint in China, I think that was enough uh, of a tour of duty. I decided to move to to Melbourne to experience things here. I was at a conference a few years back pre COVID and realized there's quite a bit of work to do in Australia as well. So I thought. Okay, let's uh, let's go back to the developed world a bit and see what we can do. Mm, that's amazing. Okay. Okay, I lived 20 years in Hong Kong. Just moved back to Canada now. Looking at your photograph, you know, as a performance artist, what I would I the kind of the the world I lean towards is this idea of like being a grain of sand on the cornea. You know, it's like a, an irritant that you can't, like this is one little grain just gets in the way and has a great impact. 
your first image are these two kids in front of Van Gogh doing this protest. You lived in Shanghai, which is, uh, you know, having been in Hong Kong and very different from Shanghai, but having, and I totally understand what you mean about um, being in Asia, and that's essentially the, the horizon of where all of this stuff is happening. I mean, you kind of also go into a, a, a palm plantation, palm oil plantation, palm tree plantation. Yeah, you definitely dive right in. Why is that inside you? What about growing up made that kind of a part of who you are? That's it, a really interesting question. Uh, I, I think it's that, and this is going to sound trite and ridiculous, but it is that curiosity. And I, I think by and large, a, a lot of people don't really have that curiosity. They're very happy with just taking things at face value. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm not quite that way. I, I do feel myself uh, as quite an irritant, as quite a grain <laughs> of sand in the eye. I've always sort of been that way. Um, but I'm also of the view that, you know, unless I've experienced it, unless I, I, I know about it, not necessarily intimately, but whatever I'm talking about, I need to have had experience in it. Um, I shouldn't be talking about it. So that mm. can go from, you know, living on that palm oil plantation all the way through trying a food, right? <laughs> don't right, say you don't like right. something if you've never done it. Um, so I think that's always been sort of sort of in my DNA. And that's what led to that. Uh, sense of adventure, certainly in Asia. And then that just snowballed into into something bigger. I thought the stint in probably the same way you did in Hong Kong, I thought the stint was going to be very short in Shanghai. And uh, hmm. here we are many, many years later with great stories to tell. Yeah, but that's life. I find I find that really interesting that you're the kind of person who goes right into the, you know, in Hebrew, it's the juice of the garbage, right? So, you know, you have the garbage bag, and the juice is like really it's the essence. And Shanghai is the juice of the garbage as far as industrialization of China is concerned or commercialization of China. But OK, so how do you deal with the with the retort of somebody listening to this saying, hey, buddy, you're into sustainability, but you're flying everywhere? I was waiting for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's just let's just knock those easy things yeah. off the table. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the whole uh, carbon footprint thing because mm -hmm. if you look at somebody like me my carbon footprint is quite high compared to a lot of people because i'm traveling but there's a reason behind that why am i traveling i'm traveling to go sit in a boardroom at a highly polluting company to tell them hey stop it and to work with them to stop it so at the end of the day that balances out you know i may be polluting in one way but i'm certainly doing a lot of good on the other hand so uh, that's how i rationalize it in my mind and I suppose for me, I'm not the kind of sustainability person who is a hug the trees and save the polar bears kind of person. I'm not an mm -hmm. activist. There's plenty of people doing that, and I'm really happy that they are. Not yeah. me. I, I'm very much a dollars and cents sort of sustainability person. I am very much of the view that the corporate world, is, the private sector, is going to be what pulls us out of this. It got us into the mess, so it's their responsibility anyways. But they have access to capital. They have a reason to to be better that governments and individuals just cannot cannot do, yep. and we've, we've learned that. So it's really on them to do the, the best they can and to improve, and that's sort of where I see my role. There's a role mm -hmm. for everybody, and that's mine. I love it. Um, moving on. Next photo. Sure. Okay, this is called Innisfree Paper Bottle. And it's it's two images put together. I, I, I'm, not, I'm assuming you didn't make these photos. Because they look not. like studio shots. Okay. So on the, in the one image on the left, it's a person holding... A, a bottle, like a squeeze bottle, and it says, hello, I'm Paper Bottle. And on the right is, oh, now I see it. It's a bit disingenuous because on the right, you see that essentially the image of the paper bottle, there's actually a plastic bottle within it. Like when you cut away the paper, there's a plastic bottle inside there. Uh, that's pretty, I mean, is that real? It's real, 100%. <laughs> Dude, like, what? How can that, that is so naked. That's such a bare... Okay, so no, I don't, I'm jumping ahead. You take it away. <laughs> so I included this image because what I'm experiencing, particularly post-COVID, is a massive growth in what we call greenwashing. So mm -hmm. uh, like the word whitewashing, where you sort of paint over, you know, bad facts. Greenwash is, is the same thing in sustainability. So that image in particular is pretty telling. And it's a... It's a very extreme example of greenwashing. But, I think companies but, are much more subtle, but this one was not so subtle and they got called who, out for who, it. 
Who is it? Innisfree? So Innisfree is a South Korean cosmetics brand, quite popular. Like these people are, could they possibly be more full of shit? Like seriously. A hundred percent. That's the thing. And they think they get away with it because they don't think consumers will, will notice or piece things together or even care. And that's, <laughs> that's such an outdated idea. But It's a um, fucking plastic bottle uh, inside, inside a of paper a, cup. What, what is this? <laughs> It's crazy, but uh, you see this a lot. You see just, I mean, the the sort of the poster child of this is ExxonMobil, right? They've been doing, yeah. you know, anti-climate change rhetoric for, for decades, but they've been veiling themselves in this idea that they're promoting a more sustainable future. Right. I, it, we've, it, it's so bold-faced, like this Innisfree picture, but we've become used to it and we just don't even think about it anymore. And we don't, you know, we don't think that they're greenwashing when they're, they're just totally lying to our face. And a lot of companies are doing this. This Most companies are actually doing this in some way, shape or form. Oh, okay. And it was some, some are doing it on purpose, but some are doing it accidentally. But there are, pl- I don't mean to say that companies are not doing good things. There are companies doing great things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, so we've never met. So just so you know, uh, Conserva- okay, conservation is one of the main pillars of the podcast. It's one of the main drivers in who I am. By a weird twist of fate, I had uh, a client pay my way to get an MBA. Of all the things in the world that I would get an MBA, to me, is kind of funny. But so what's your academic development? So undergraduate degree in political science and international relations. And then I have a double master's degree, one in the study of international organizations because I was working at the UN uh, and then the other in political science. How that morphed into sustainability is uh, because of that sort of foray into public good. And then when I moved to Shanghai, finally trying to figure out, okay, how do I marry that experience in in public good in the corporate world, uh, the UN's pretty much corporation, yeah, in a, a commercial city like Shanghai. So that then morphed into sustainability. And actually, when I got started, it wasn't even called sustainability. Um, I don't even think that was a term yet, uh, even though kids now, kids, God, I sound so old. People now come out of school with degrees in sustainability. Uh, back then, that wasn't a thing. It was more mm-hmm. sort of charity and philanthropy, and it grew from there. Did you go to Shanghai? Okay, so this is people used to always ask me this all the time, and they, or, or they do ask me this all the time. Like, how did you decide to go to Hong Kong? So, what I love is is to put at the heart of of these conversations because it's about inspiring listeners, right? But that it's not magic, you know. Like somebody's listening to this, you know. Like for example, I had Paul. Speaking of uh, Sea Shepherd, I had Paul Watson as a guest on the podcast. To me, he's such a champion, but. How do we get to that moment in your head or in your brain that says, I think I'm going to go to Shanghai. I think I'm going to go work. I'm going to go to Shanghai. So did you have a job beforehand? Like, tell us that story. Yeah. So I was in Shanghai uh, just visiting, meeting friends and sort of on a little vacation. This was in 2008, I want to say. Uh, And that was sort of the height of the financial crisis. And so, you know, in Shanghai, for those who haven't been there, it's a it's a very commercial city. You know, you go to these big lavish dinners where, you know, you spend heaps of money on impressing people. And it's it's very much that showy sort of sort of Mm -hmm. culture, particularly in Shanghai. And and I was sort of taken aback and go, oh, this is amazing. It's so cool. And it is cool because there's lots to experience. But then I went back to New York and with the financial crisis, everybody is so sad and so depressing. And they're, you know, tossing up whether they can afford to take a cab home or go to dinner that night. And it's just or eat or eat. It's just these decisions. Uh, Yeah. So just thinking, okay, I've had a good stint in in New York. I was there for quite a bit of time. I had my time at the U.N. I did a bit of of corporate work with McKinsey and A.C. Nielsen. I thought, okay. Time for the next adventure. You're right. It's not magic. That's certainly not the case. There's definitely a lot of planning that goes into being uh, to moving around the world. But I think at the same time, there is a, a bit of magic to it where you just sort of make that decision and you say, okay, why not? What's the worst that could happen? Right, right. But, you know, there's the, the fact that you're a former McKinsey person, which may not mean something to somebody who, who's never kind of come up to that, that that company, I mean, there is something about a McKinsey brain, supposedly. The cult, so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, a high achievers or whatever. And as I'm saying this, there's the image of, hello, 
it's funny. It says, hello, I'm paper bottle. It doesn't even, it's not even grammatically correct. <laughs> I just, hello, I'm paper bottle. The, the marketing department's definitely focused on the wrong stuff there. Dude. Okay. So, but as, as, okay, so let's, let's, cause one of the things about, you know, having done my MBA and also been on the front line of conservation in terms of shark rescue and all that stuff, how do you see the, um, because there's some people who are just absolute, right? Like some people be like, no, no, we have to stop oil. We have to stop using oil. Oil is bad. Oil is bad. It's like, yeah, but buddy, you, we need plastic. Like, you know, you need plastic in the hospitals. Like you can't, like you need some of this stuff, right? So how, as a McKinsey person, do you marry the uh, the shocking stupidity of the hello, I'm paper bottle with reality? It sent shivers down my spine when you called me a McKinsey person. Um, <laughs> no, it's a it's a compliment. <laughs> um, I, so, so one of the 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 big things in the sustainability world that we sort of keep hidden behind the uh, behind the curtain that we should be definitely talking more about, but uh, we we don't. And it's sort of the the forefront of the movement as or the movement as well is what's called a just transition, which you totally hit on just right now. So a just transition basically talks about we can't just flip a switch. We can't just yep. stop using oil. We can't just stop this, that or the other thing because there's processes that have to take place. That's the McKinsey brain. There are things that have to be put in place before any of that happens. And we're years away from doing these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So a good example is uh, getting rid of plastic. OK, you get rid of plastic, you replace it with a lot of people say glass bottles fine where's the infrastructure for that how long is the infrastructure going to take to develop how are you going to get companies involved the recycling companies involved to switch their entire process to glass recycling which is not easy it's actually more time consuming and energy intensive than plastic recycling so that's one aspect of it if you look at it from a social perspective you put all those people that have worked their entire lives at oil companies out of a job what are they supposed to do how do they earn a living if that's all they know i'm not defending oil companies absolutely Mm -hmm. we need to stop oil but i'm just trying to show that there's so much more nuance to it we need to upskill people or reskill people to put them in other places so it's not as easy as just saying do this don't do that there's a lot more that needs to thought that needs to go into this I, I love the um, the kind of you know over time you just re- you realize how when a, a simple question which is so easy to blurt like yeah why can't we do that why can't we just stop and it's like to a certain extent sometimes simple questions can can trigger incredible uh, change but the world is so massively complex you know even something like why don't we just transition to um jet fuel that's not fossil fuel based or that's somehow re- sustainable sustainably linked or whatever it's because it's wicked complex and it's not for it's not somebody there going no 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 i want the world to be bad it's just it's really difficult to to so what was the phrase you used for transitioning it's a just transition just transition so a transition that's a transition that's that's good Okay, 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 okay. And so um, let's wrap this up a little bit in terms of how do you articulate all of this uh, uh, expertise in your head around just transition, sustainability, about the complexity into somebody who wants to take action to go, okay, well... That's that's kind of why I gravitate towards the corporate world and sitting more in boardrooms than I would uh, speaking to activists or, or getting on a, a soapbox per se, is because I think in the corporate world, they sort of get where I'm coming from with this. They understand certainly the dollars and cents. They get the bottom line. Uh, they get the, the idea that it's going to take quite a bit of time and that movement needs to be going incrementally in the right direction, not just fast and fits and starts mm-hmm. so that that's why i gravitate to that sort of segment of of change i suppose i think a lot of times with activists uh as we talked about at the very beginning they're not necessarily the most pragmatic and i'm painting with really broad strokes here mm-hmm. but uh but by and large it's it's quite difficult to have conversations with them when it comes to making these smaller incremental change god bless them for wanting large impactful big change and there's there's space for that there's not space for that everywhere. There are spaces where we have to be focused on the small incremental change and we need to be patient. 
And then, of course, right. there's things that we can change right away that we haven't, <laughs> that we should mm-hmm, definitely mm-hmm. Be, be screaming at the top of our lungs to change because those are the, the low-hanging fruit, the easy things to change. Right. Just let's pluck it out of, this, out of the, the hat or in the air that's in your brain. What was the one... What was one of the most frustrating moments where you're just like, this is a low-hanging fruit and nobody's reaching to, to pluck it? Like, it doesn't have to be in China. And I know people like to think, oh, China, because it's remote and it's like, oh, it's like the, some some frontier lawless. No, no, no. It's super, super advanced. It, I even think terms like um, developing, whatever, are no longer apply, just in my mind, in my opinion. So what is the low-hanging fruit that you were like, it's just there that you were just were frustrated that we weren't able to impact? It's almost like we had a conversation to plan this beforehand. And for anybody listening, we haven't <laughs> because I was, going to talk ab- I was going to talk about China. And I think China is the low-hanging fruit that a lot of people are ignoring. So mm. not to discuss politics, but the, the way things have been moving in China over the past decade, certainly while I've been there, not that I've been responsible for it, but, but while I was there, you can see the movements to becoming a more sustainable society in China. And I know when people hear that, they go, no, they're a polluter. Right. Yeah, sure. They're this massive battleship that they're trying to turn around in the ocean. It's going to take a minute. Give them a second to get there. But they're getting there and they're getting there quicker than a lot of other countries are doing. So when I talk to bigger groups or I try to inspire others if I'm sitting on a panel or whatnot, I often tell them, especially in the US and EU, look to China for inspiration. Look to them for the solutions because they've been they've had their hand forced to create yep. these solutions and they're doing it. And they're doing it going from extremely polluting uh, state-owned enterprises, environment, et cetera, to something that is is far more advanced than what's happening in the U.S. and the EU. And people turn their minds off when they hear that and they say, no, that cannot be. Mm-hmm. And that's the low-hanging fruit. Look around you uh. and be inspired by those that are doing great things. Don't get stuck in this idea that, and it's quite a post-colonial idea that, oh, I'm in the EU. I know better than you because right. at the end of the day, I'm white, right? I'm European. I know better than you. I, how can China tell me what to do. I'm more advanced than them. And that is the the wrong mentality in all mm-hmm. situations. Uh, but it's also the low-hanging fruit that we're missing. Right. Okay. Well, since you said low-hanging fruit that we're missing, I'll use that as a segue to the next photo. Oh, what's her name? There's a... Um, uh, she's, she's like a preferred... Okay, so in this image, we've got a, a collage. So the background is black like the far far background is essentially black on top of it i can sort of see uh a black and white it's like a black and white print of the of the whole planet and on top of that is a collage of uh um like uh, headlines from a newspaper or whatever like there is no climate emergency another one is rising co2 is greening the planet co2 is not a pollutant Global warming is a non-problem. So these are all like kind of cut and pasted onto this thing. And in the middle, in white letters on a red background, uh, is it says deniers. So it's just obviously it's the only color in the image. Uh, we have this right blood red deny. Well, the letters are white, but the, it's on a box. It's blood red. It looks like a Barbara Kruger image. I don't know if you know who she is. Mm-hmm. She's a photographer. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's kind of it, it's kind of that that feeling. Take it away. So one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about uh, are <laughs> what it says in the in the picture, climate deniers. And mm. just this, uh, I can't believe we're talking about this, but we are because it's a thing that people still don't believe there's anything bad happening. Uh, and, and we're certainly living now in this sort of post-truth era where facts don't matter as much anymore as they, they probably should. And, and there's even statistics showing that we've become so polarized in our, our viewpoints that we refuse to listen. We, we refuse to get out of that, that thought bubble that we're stuck mm. in, whether that's from social media or anything that we consume. And that doesn't change when you look at issues like climate change and sustainability. There are still a very vocal group of people who do not believe it's happening, the climate deniers. And just for a bit of context, I mean, at this stage, it's something like 97% of credible scientists say that climate change is a thing, it's happening, we need to do something. There's even a group called the Skeptical Scientists Association 
that say that climate change is a thing, and those are the skeptical client scientists. Right. So, so it's a very small faction that of scientists that say, you know, this isn't happening, uh, and, and they're encouraging people to deny it. And a lot of those people are hearing these messages coming from from big corporate lobby groups that are sort of filtering in more of that greenwashing and climate denialism. Uh, but it's quite a sad state of affairs, and I, I don't bring it up with the sense that I have any solutions to it. I don't know how to get those people on side. If you're mm. at this stage seeing everything happen and you go, oh, no, it's it's fine. It's just, you know, the natural way the earth works or you know yeah we've had stronger hurricanes this year and we've had you know one in a thousand you hear this all the time it's the one in a thousand year storm that's already happened five times this decade like right there's something going on why is your head in the sand (laughs) well there is the well there is the um, i not that i can i'm going to address what you're saying i'm just sort of thinking like this is kind of your world and, and so, for example, since you are in, in Melbourne, you're in Australia, and you've moved from, you know, a, a, a society where you're basically an outsider. So when you've shifted into Australia, you're still kind of an, an outsider in which you're, you're, you're an American. How do you see your mentalities morphing given the locale, the location? Really interesting question, and I think that's part of the, the 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 joy, the interesting thing, and also the struggle of of traveling, being a global citizen, as they call it. Uh, it is that that need to morph and adapt, and to always remember in the back of your head that when you are somewhere else, you're a guest in that space, and you need to you definitely need to remember that you need to adapt to that in a lot of ways, and I think. Whether it's in China, I, I lived a stint in Korea and now in, in Melbourne, uh, there are slight shifts. But I think what is is good in my space and what I do at least professionally is it's quite culturally agnostic. So okay. there's not that much of a shift that needs to happen. People know that we need to change. Uh, people know there are ways to do it. So I don't need to necessarily adapt a bit of the messaging right. here and there and, you know, what we talk about. I mean, in Australia, certainly they, they love to dig things out of the ground when it comes to the corporate world. So, you know, the, the, the timbre of the conversation changes a bit. But at the end of the day, I'm not having to morph and change how I approach things too much, at least in the professional sense. The personal world, very different. So how in your work, when you're in a, in a boardroom situation, because there it's, I mean, there it's all driven by self-interest, right? So it's people are just like, okay, I want to, I want to improve sales or I want to improve uh, whatever it is. But how do you run into climate denial in a corporate Setting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting approach that one has to take. And, you know, I would have loved to have been in the room when, you know, whenever it was back in the 70s and 80s, some marketing guru came up with with how we approach sustainability messaging. You know, it's always the same thing. You see the, the polar bear on the melting ice cap. You see, you know, the uh, this dystopian future, sort of like Mad Max-ish. And that's that's so out there for people that from a, a just a put your marketing hat on and put your communications hat on that's that's not going to work right people can't relate to that people can't get what that has to do with them and i think in a lot of ways because of that uh and we'll talk about this in a sec but there's this sense that what am i supposed to do if that's the future if it's inevitable if that's what's being marketed to me as one of only 8 billion people i can't do anything about that so i'm going to sit back and do nothing at all that that's individuals but when you get to the corporate world adjusting the message is so so important and i think that's in a lot of ways where more of the activist community is lacking is that they're not adjusting the message to make it <clears throat> resonant and salient to those folks in a corporate world so to do that you have to talk about money you have to marry this idea of doing better and being altruistic with the bottom line and i don't see anything wrong with putting those things together i think they they should be working in lockstep and so when you start to frame things that way versus getting on a soapbox in the boardroom ears start to perk up when you start to say okay if you look at your competition these are the folks that are more sustainable they're doing much better than you are uh, financially with with consumer attrition etc they start to listen so you frame it in a way that makes sense to them that's the simple solution to do it it's not so simple sometimes, but I think that definitely gets people listening. And in the boardroom, they're certainly more pragmatic. So they understand, like you said, that 
it comes down to the bottom line. And if that bottom line is uh, going to be sustainable because I'm sustainable, they're all for it. Right. I think my brain just floated off into the distance because it's not only about, you know, it's communication, right? So it's not only about what you want to say. It's like you have to understand who is listening. So it's like if I'm speaking to uh, a puppy, you know, I know this sounds good, but if I'm speaking to a puppy, I understand because I've had dogs so much, I understand how to change my communication so the puppy understands, you know, is, is getting the message, right? And so within a boardroom context, though, well, how do you deal in, a, in terms of your training with the sort of the, the mismatch that in order to get the message across to, you know, within a corporate setting, that by definition, by vocabulary, by concept, whatever, they're incapable of processing the message that somebody from an activist uh, mind would would connect with do you understand what i'm saying like how how do you bridge those because fundamentally the the people the two different brains who, who are you know it's like speaking to a puppy like the puppy just can't understand the brains just doesn't get it absolutely a, a really good example of that is a lot of the um the factory work that i used to do so when i was working with bsr who's sort of the mckinsey of the the sustainability world what we would do is we would always get met with the the skeptics, particularly the middle managers, when we would go in to talk about the work that we do. And the middle managers, as anybody who works in the corporate world understands, they're the ones that sort of make or break things, right? It's it's They're the gatekeepers at the end of the day. They're, operators, they're the operators. Yeah. What we would tend to do is we would create or we would pitch these large-scale social programs, particularly around women's empowerment. Uh, so I, I'm sure I'm allowed to say this. So Walmart, I, I know they get raked across the coals in, in the United States and, and other places for some of the workers stuff that they're doing uh, in the developed world. This podcast is uh, fully supported and sponsored is by it? Walmart. Okay. Walmart. <laughs> Where they should, I'm just joking, <laughs> totally joking. I'll make sure to pitch them well then. No, um, so but they do. I know they get raked across the coals, but in the in the developing world, uh, and yeah, you're right. We don't use that term anymore. But in places like China, they are doing amazing things when it comes sure. to the social part of sustainability. And just for clarity, backing up just a quick second, sustainability is not just environmentalism. Sustainability also involves yeah. anything with with social, human, and labor rights, and it involves governance and transparency at a corporate level as well. So it's it's an umbrella mm-hmm. term. But in in that situation, when we're trying to pitch worker betterment programs, women's empowerment programs, uh, things that that will help their workers be better people. We don't approach the conversation that way because that's a very altruistic thing. It's an altruistic endeavor, absolutely. Does a middle manager care about bettering their workers? No, they care about the widgets getting produced. So what do we do? We tell them, and this is how we pitch it. We would say, okay, if your workers are better educated, have stronger communication skills, if they understand the basics of personal health and well-being – and I'll give a really graphic example. Feel free to edit this out. But in China, nope, <laughs> nope, good. In China, um, contraception and sex education is not typically uh, discussed. It's a very taboo subject. So if somebody is to get pregnant, they would use abortion as a form of contraception, not using a, a mm-hmm. prophylactic or whatever. A lot of times you have a lot of female workers who will have an abortion and have to take lots of time off work to recover. If yeah. you teach that person that that is not the only option they have when it comes to getting you know sex education they're not going to be missing work as much they're going to be healthier they're probably going to be happier as a result and what happens then is that healthy happy workers are more productive workers they there's a better retention rate they come to work more so you have less absenteeism and by and large we have statistics that show they also like the company more and they stay with you so you have lower attrition overall then middle managers go oh okay so that impacts my bottom line because now they're able to make more stuff and it's just easier on me overall they start to listen that way so it's an altruistic endeavor but it's also framed in in the language and the reality of what that altruistic endeavor can create in the long run that's fantastic. It also put in my head that I should ask Trojan to support the podcast, but that's a different Trojan story. and Walmart, they might in be China. odds. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, look, since we said Trojan and Walmart, let's move on to the next photo. You're like, who is this guy putting on this podcast? It's ridiculous. I believe that activism, sustainability, like, I'm, again, I may be wrong, but I, th- I think it's kind of like a chorus, right? And the chorus, you could have all kinds of voices. You need, like, you need the Paul Watsons who go out there with the Sea Shepherds and who just give the finger to the, to the, you know, to the corporate world and say, no, absolutely not. But you, and you need to have, you know, the, the, the more, um, measured kind of, you need all those voices. And that's how we move everything. Absolutely, 100%. Okay, let's go on to their last photograph. Okay, so it's called Climate Doomism. And there's an old stately building. I My architecture's crappy. It looks like it's in Germany because it's a German I think flag. So. Uh, and then two people are walking. It looks like it's probably early summer, midsummer. They're holding hands. It's very sweet. Uh, it's, uh, you know, twilight-ish or nightfall. And uh, the light's beautiful. Behind the building's lit. And what really makes the image, which I get to last, is in the foreground, it says carbon clock. And it's been an erected sort of display thing. And it says German CO2 budget left to blah, 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 reach, and then global CO2, and then these impossible numbers, like uh, 2 billion, 35 trillion, bazillion, uh, I don't know, just just impossible numbers. Um, why don't you make sense for what I'm looking yeah, at? Yeah, and I'm so glad we're ending with this image as well, uh, because it's, it's more of a, a positive, hopefully, conversation. So in the image, it's, it's one of many that shows just how large the problem is that we're facing when it comes to climate change, when it comes to to saving the planet. And like I said mm-hmm. a second ago, you know, when you're faced with these massive numbers, with these massive tasks that, that are ahead of us, most people just say, forget it. Like, that's, that's no, it's, it's too, too big. big. What am I supposed to do? Can't keep in your head. And if it's all sort of, you know, if, if that's how things are going and if that's where we're, we're headed anyways, we, we just, you know, ride the wave until we get there. Like, just live the best life you can if we're all, if, if we're going yeah. to hell in a handbasket. The message that I, I really want to get out to everybody is is one of anti-climate doomism. You see a lot of climate doomism, a lot of people just giving up, a lot of messages yeah. as well. And what a lot of folks in the sustainability space that do more of the uh, the communications research, they found out that this push into doomism in social media in particular is being funded by these big lobby groups again. So ah. it's the next evolution of that uh, that greenwashing in, in a much right. more subtle way. So fake stats that are getting pushed out, things that are saying, you know, encouraging people to just say forget it in, in much more yeah. subtle ways is something that's been happening a lot in social media. And it's a terrible space to be in. So I just want to really encourage people and, and not to sound sort of Pollyanna-ish, but there's lots to be hopeful for. There's a lot more to be hopeful mm-hmm. for than there is to be scared of. If you want to make a change, make a change. If you want to be more sustainable, find out how to do it and get stuck in and get it done. Uh, don't sit back mm-hmm. on your couch and just think somebody else is going to do it for you. I, I don't. Li- I hate using the uh, the the Gandhi quote about being the change you want to see in the world because um, I don't necessarily mm. believe in that. I think it's going to take a lot more than individual action to make change. I think it's it's more community mm. led, uh, and and we need to collaborate with each other. But at the end of the day, don't let all of these these oh my god things scare you into a corner and 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 stop you from being that change that you want to be for sure and and okay as you're saying this i'm looking at the image a little closer it says time left to save the planet and i'm like are you freaking kidding me (laughs) there's a countdown like well how is that helpful and okay so the whole point of the podcast is if we only have one life how do we make every second count and I mean, really, this I, this feeling of being overwhelmed and disempowered, I mean, is real. Like, it's 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 kind of like, you know, when you're facing a problem that's so huge, like, maybe you can, you can answer this. What is a percentage of people who will throw up their hands in, in, in like, fear or, or disempowered, like, uh, being overwhelmed with that little percentage 
that is entrepreneurial and it's going to solve the, the situation. It's going to face the situation like you. I'm going to go to Shanghai. Like I'm going to go to the juice of the garbage to get involved. Like how would you um, describe that population? Yeah, so I think there's a couple different segments, certainly. So there's the, the ones that will just never do anything because they just don't care. Right. Luckily, I, I okay. obviously there's no statistics on this, but I feel that that's quite a small population. Uh, then there are those that are actively working against what we're trying to do. That's even a, a smaller population. And hopefully it okay. continues to become smaller and smaller. But then you have those people that want to do something that don't know how or they don't know how to how to begin. And I think they're the most susceptible to this climate doomism message where, okay, I don't I want to do something, I don't know what to do, but all these things are coming at me, so just forget it. And it's the same in a consumer world, right? You have those those non-adopting sort of segments uh, that yep. that are are there with consumers. And it's the same with us. We need to really encourage that group and show them how they can get involved. And I think the way to do that is to make it relatable. So if we go back to that first image making being an activist or getting involved or being more sustainable relate to to their life much more in a way that doesn't paint them as some looney tune that's going to you know toss tomato soup on a van gogh right nobody relates to mm. that they want to make it unless that unless that's their thing and I, I, I think with that segment, they're the activist segment. So they would already be involved. They'd be heavily involved. And, yeah. and doomism is not going to stop them from doing what they want. And that's amazing. I really love that. And then you have the folks sort of like uh, myself, right, who are involved or yourself who are involved that we kind of in a lot of ways operate sort of behind the scenes. And, you know, the uh, sort of the great Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, making sure the the machinations are all happening. Those are the, the the biggest segments, I think, when it comes to the sustainability world, I suppose, and then who's going to do what. But I think by and large, the majority of, of people really do want to get involved. They want to find a way to get involved. Uh, and what I, I always tell people is it's amazing to get involved. You should absolutely do it. But to definitely remember one thing, that you can do anything, but you can't you mm-hmm. can't do everything. Pick what you want to do. Pick your little piece of the pie and and work at it. I think as altruists, we really want to do everything. We want to help the homeless person on the street. We want to, you know, adopt that puppy. We want to go read to elderly people. And there's only so much of us to go around. But I think the encouraging part is there are so many of us to get this work done that we don't need to operate in a silo. Somebody will help the homeless person. Somebody will adopt that puppy. If you want to contribute in other ways, go for it and don't let anybody dissuade you from doing it. Beautiful. Is there something that a listener can go check out that you're connected with specifically? If they're if they're like, oh, dude, John Pabon, I love how how he speaks. Wants to get involved. Are you doing something more? Uh, community focused that they can join or you can suggest? Uh, nothing at this stage. So they can certainly check out my website, which is johnpavone.com. Um, I do quite a bit of writing. So I do have a book that's out called Sustainability for the Rest of Us. Wait, stop, stop. No, no, no. You don't bring out your book at the <laughs> end. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe it is like call to action. Okay, what's the name of the book? S- sustainability for the Rest of Us, your no bullshit five point plan for saving the planet. And in that, I. Available on Amazon? It's available on Amazon, on uh, every sort of uh, big retailer online. So uh, okay. definitely. Definitely check that out. You can link to it from my website. So there's links out to all the places you can buy it. Um, but it's a it's a in the show notes. That's in the show notes. Uh, it's it's a practical guide for how to as an individual, as that segment who doesn't know what to do, to really get out there and do stuff. So I talk a lot about my professional experience. Uh, it's it's been called really a no nonsense sort of approach. So I don't talk to people as if I'm a McKinsey person. I talk like we're talking right now, right? So it's a very approachable right. sort of sort of book. Um, and I also have a book coming out in early 2023, all about greenwashing. So all about that sort of second image that we that we discussed and the ways to Amazing. the ways to watch it, the ways to avoid it, and uh, sort of what we're supposed to do with it. And, uh, and hopefully stop it at some stage. So that's how I'm spending my time. Um, and that's my little piece of the universe that I've carved out is getting my thoughts down on paper. John, fantastic. Okay, uh, how old is the book? So uh, this was out in late 2020. Yep, God, it's already late been two years. Yeah. Okay, respect. 
because in a way, I I know books and book publishing, all this stuff. So, um, how did did its publication surprise you? Because you can never anticipate what's going to happen. Mm-mm. The the marketing side of it <laughs> really surprised me, and and I do have you know sort of that that communications mindset definitely. But I thought, okay, I'm done with the book. Put the end at the end of it published it and that would be that would be it and it's not there's that's just where the work starts yes like it's it's a marathon race and i think even towards the end of writing it i was i remember i was in covid quarantine in korea when i was finishing the book and all i could think about was just get this thing done i'm tired of writing it i'm tired of dealing with it i'm tired of looking at it and mm. i thought okay well that would be it but then you have to actually sell the thing <laughs> and that was the part that surprised me the most is getting it out into the world well, uh, writing a book is like making a baby, and then when you publish it, it's born. But like like a human being, you actually have to nurture it into a like a a a, a, a being. And That's in it. the same way, like, do you have any advice for somebody who's going to write? I I have a very I I don't know if it's unique, but I have a process that certainly works for me, and I think it's the kind of the part that scares people and gets them not to write is getting things down on paper and worried it's not going to be perfect don't worry Mm. about it being perfect just get it down you know there there are experts out there that will make it perfect for you if you have thoughts if you if you have ideas just start writing and start pumping stuff out and definitely don't uh don't self-critique don't edit don't you know don't do any of that just get things down on paper and worry about the uh the perfection much later on that's the biggest piece of advice i can give to people i agree with you a hundred percent Okay, John, this is, uh, you know, you're speaking my language. This has been, you know, so good. And uh, my head's still reeling about this time left to save the the planet. I'm like, what? Don't fall for the climate doomism. Don't, don't, don't. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, I I mean, things are going to change, certainly. It's not going to be the world. In five years, it's not going to be the world that our our parents knew. We know that. It's called climate change, not, you know, climate change equals the end of the world it's called life it's that's how, right I mean, like the, the world that's how that's what happens that's it we'll have to adapt i mean you're not going to have your your timeshare in florida probably in 30 years but you know we we adapt and we move on and as long as we're smart about it and we continue to move in the right direction what else are we supposed to do yeah what else are we supposed to do john <laughs> thank you so much man thank you <laughs> absolutely no thank you shooting it raw Yes, shooting it raw.